Cade Mila Falta. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. Hello everybody and welcome to the Letter from Ireland show series 3 episode 5. In the show we are going to visit the places of your Irish ancestors and bring their stories to life. Before we start, do remember that any resources or references that we mention in this episode, you can find them in the show notes at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 305. What a super show we have in store for you all today, listeners. Now, what are we going to get up to? Well, we're taking off to the four corners of Ireland in search of some ambassadors for this wonderful country of ours. I will let you in on a secret. You may not know this, but one of the best parts of running the green room and being involved in writing the letter from Ireland and hosting the letter from Ireland show is the excuse that it gives both Mike and myself to travel around our lovely Irish countryside. Not that we need an excuse to travel, but you know what I mean. Now, while the countryside is beautiful, it is the people we meet along the way that makes the journey extra special. We've been fortunate to come across so many interesting people on our trips. Today, I want to introduce you to just a few of them. Come with us as we chat to Padraig McQuitter, Sean Windsor, Anne-Marie Diffley, Stephen Teeling and Joe Connell. Now, some of these names may be familiar to you and they are part of our show today because of their unique interest in areas of our Irish culture and history. True ambassadors for Ireland, I think. Each of the people we meet are part of the Ireland Mike and I see when we travel around the countryside. So why not sit back, relax and join us as we head first to Belfast and chat with Padraig McQuitter. Padraig is a Green Room member who has lived through the t- troubles in his native city of Belfast, or Bailfarishta, as we say in Ireland. So he has a unique view of life in his hometown of Bailfarishta. Mike and I were up north a while back there, and we met up with Padraig McQuitter. You know, it takes a native to show you around the hidden places of a city. And so we were fortunate to have Padraig himself walk around the city with us. A unique feature of Belfast are the peace walls. They're built to keep the peace between the Catholic and Protestant populations. And these walls were built right through housing estates across the city. And so we stopped beside one of the peace walls in the short strand area of Belfast for a chat with Porrig. I'm here in Belfast city in Northern Ireland, Bail Farishta, as it's known in Gaelic, and I'm with a member of our green room. And here we are with... Porrig McCutcher, that's Bail Farishta. And Porrig, can you tell us where we are in Belfast here? I notice we're standing in front of a sign anyway that's giving us a little clue. Yes. Short Strand. This, this is Short Strand, uh, uh, and for some local people, they also refer to part of it as Ballymacarrett. And this is in East Belfast, and it's about six or seven miles from where I live. I live in West Belfast, in a place called Lanadoon. And I have a number of friends here, 
and I would come over here occasionally, not too often. And, and is this a predominantly Catholic or Protestant area when we're in East Belfast here now? This this part we're in here, the Shore Strand, would be predominantly nationalist or Catholic, and it is completely surrounded by uh, Protestant uh, Unionist loyalists. And at one time, this is one of the most besieged areas in Belfast. A lot of people have been killed from this area. People killed in uh, no warning bomb explosions, shootings and uh, and such like. But now it is as you, as, the as quiet. Well, a, a lot yeah. quieter, apart from the airplanes flying over. Okay. And if you were to have somebody here visit you in Belfast, where would you like them to see or what would give them a flavour of the of the city? Well, for like yourself, yourself being here, I would, I would advise people to get a sense of Belfast, to come to places like a short strand and also uh, with and see how close it is to a loyalist area. The fact that we are standing at a, a peace wall, one of the many in Belfast here, it's estimated about uh, 15 mile, not a continuous wall. A so wall, this this is a wall that was built? This was built in uh, from 1969 until today and unfortunately there are more walls going up than walls coming down. And this is indicative of the society in which we're living here in Belfast. Oh, it's, it's unfortunate, something we don't want to see. But from speaking personally, I can't see any uh, sign of these walls coming down. There one, one came down there recently in, in the Springfield Road, but it was a, a very small part of the road and it was a bit of a hype around it. So walking around the city, you'll see the walls and I also notice murals on the walls as well. Paintings and pictures depicting history and events that had happened uh, during the trouble times. Uh, anything anything else people should look out for? <laughs> yes, I mean, Belfast, in the, like, I, I wouldn't be frequent in the city centre too often, but it's fairly vibrant in the sense that uh, there's pubs and clubs and uh, cafes. What, what people do, there's there's not not a particular, not an awful lot to do, but I would say that uh, for people to get a sense of Belfast, walk up the Falls Road or even walk up the Shankill Road, and a place in which I, I would uh, or ask people to go to, if they can't go, is the Milltown Cemetery, because of the history, especially of Belfast. So we're going to take a trip out there maybe later, and also uh, we're near the Titanic experience, which I know is, a, is this whole area was, uh, shipbuilding was a big thing here, wasn't it, through the century so we're going to take a look there as well and have, have a look at that yes. uh, because I know that was the shipbuilding was what made Belfast great really wasn't it in the yes at one time uh, the, the shipyard here was the biggest in in, in the world short very close to here was a, a Sirocco rope works which again was the biggest in the world at the time for for rope making rope, rope again making. to build yeah, in, yeah with the ships yeah and also closer to that again, or very close to that again, was Gallagher's Tobacco Factory, which was the biggest in the world at one time. Wow, so this was a very, very thriving area. And I know you were, we were talking about the population, that it's actually less now than it was back in the 1800s. Yes, the, pop the population does fluctuate fluctuate depend on the, the lateral boundaries but Belfast has a population of about 320,000 but the period in which you're talk, uh, talking about it was near enough a half a million people at one time Wow! and uh, it's possibly because Belfast expanding whereby you have the, the suburbs being built uh, and where I live, for instance, it's, it's a relatively new part of Belfast. It was only the first houses were built in the, the late 1960s, for instance. Okay. And it's a very big community. Okay. So, Porrick, we're going to really look forward to exploring some more of your city, your hometown, <laughs> Bale Farishta, and thanks for talking to us Pretty on the Letter from Ireland. Pretty Pretty
Now, wasn't that interesting? And a little sad too, I think, that the walls are getting higher nowadays, so many years after the peace agreement was signed. In fact, as Podrick was saying, new walls are being built and there are almost now 15 miles of peace walls throughout Belfast City. As we chatted there in the sunshine beside the peace wall, life went on as normal around us. People were out in their gardens and the mums were pushing babies and buggies. And as you heard there during the clip, there were planes flying overhead. I guess if something has been in your life for a long time, you no longer see it. That's what it felt like to us anyway. We were looking at these walls with fresh eyes, but the locals, they were to the locals, they were just a, a facet of their everyday life in Belfast. We saw Podrick again the next day and he took us up to the famous Falls Road and into Milltown Cemetery. But that's a story for another day. Podrick is an ambassador for his hometown and his love of his city does shine through when he chats to us, doesn't it? He really helped us understand his perspective on the complex history of Belfast. But we take leave of Belfast and Podrick for now as we've lots more people for you to meet in today's show. So why don't we move on from peace walls to castle walls and off we travel now down to Enniscorthy in County Wexford. Here we met another very interesting man called Sean Windsor. Now Sean crossed our paths when we visited his castle a few years ago but I never forgot his story. You see he owns a castle. Yes he's the dynamo behind the restoration of Wilton Castle that's on his family's farm. And as you hear in our chat with Sean, his grandfather came from Wicklow to Enniscorthy in County Wexford to work on the land as a steward. And the imposing castle has been partially restored by Sean. Here he is to tell us his story and why he single-handedly took on this immense castle restoration project. By the way, the Windsor surname had to have a story attached to it. We all think of the royal family in London when we hear that surname, Windsor. So Mike begins our chat with Sean about his Windsor surname and then why he decided to work on the castle. Uh, we were standing in a partially restored area of the castle for this interview with the most romantic stone window behind us looking out on the river. I wasn't at all surprised to hear that many wedding parties came just to this spot to be photographed right here. Fantastic. So I'm going to jump in there as well, Sean. Uh, you, you have an unusual surname, which uh, you, you, you share in common with a certain uh, family over uh, that's, that's near good, London, yeah. Windsor. I guess certain about that. Yeah, I'm sure you get no end of it. <laughs> and and uh, you, your Windsors came from up around Wicklow in the first that's place, correct. did they? Glendalock yeah. and Lara and Trooperstown area. There was a number of families of Windsor up around there, quite common name at the time up there. Yeah. And still some Windsors up there in that area. So your father came down, or your grandfather came down here for the land, basically, and the opportunity yeah, was there. My grandfather would have come to work on the on the as an a steward on the estate here. That's oh, how we come okay. to come here. Yeah. Often And listen, as you say, uh, I think your your grand your grandfather and maybe your father before as well didn't have much interest in restore or you know paying any attention, I guess, to the place here. In fact, no, it was a danger. The, the, there was no real. Um, interest in it I suppose they would have they would have never done any damage to it as such but uh, yeah. no I'm sure it, was, it wasn't a time that I suppose to be doing up those type of buildings there was a uh, I was in the more recent years I think people took more of an interest in some of the heritage and yes all buildings historic buildings in the country um, yeah they were more of a liability I suppose than an all right here's the big question so what in the name of God possessed you <laughs> to, to put so much of your graft energy time money 
to produce this spectacular place, that, let it be said at the end. Spectacular. Yeah. But I mean, people must have questioned you along the way. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I suppose, yeah. Even the amount of question would have been done on it and so on, and maybe people would, a lot of people would have had doubt in my mind as to whether I was doing the right thing or wrong thing over the years. And I suppose I, I was easily put off, I have to admit, for a long time. Mm -hmm. But we would have, uh, I would have persisted. I always wanted to do something with it. Yeah. I was always kind of a, maybe even a childish ambition from the time I was very young. Imagine that. To try and do something with it. Yes. I always felt it was a very fine building, very um, structurally quite sound, even though it had failed a lot over the years, but still it was structurally quite good. It was in a very unspoiled area, very nice scenic area here on the, in the Boer Valley, as we call it here in, the, here in Wexford. And do you think the Windsor family will be here for a while yet? I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's hard to know the younger I'm sure you have every intention of it being so. <laughs> yeah, I'll be here for a while longer. Anyway. Well, <laughs> I think it's been left now definitely in Sean Windsor's loving, caring hands, this castle. Yes. And we've had a wonderful time staying Thanks. here. And I'm sure many more people will and over the years to come. Yeah. And yourself and Mike have been very welcome. It's been a pleasure meeting Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much. How's that for an example of one man's determination and vision? And but for Sean, that castle would be still in ruins like so many we see around the countryside. He had the dream since childhood to restore the castle and he has now brought that dream to fruition. As he says himself, many tried to dissuade him when he started the restoration and it took vision to see the project to completion. And now it is a beautiful place for guests to stay and experience life in a castle with 21st century convenience, I might add. We stayed in the castle ourselves for two nights and had the whole place to ourselves. A unique experience and one we'll not forget. If you fancy a night in a castle and are visiting County Wexford, do pop into Wilton Castle and say hello to Sean Windsor. He's a quietly spoken man, but I think you'll agree, a true ambassador for Ireland. And now, as they say, for something completely different. We're off to the capital of Ireland, Dublin City, and into Trinity College, where we met Anne-Marie Diffley in the famous Long Library in Trinity. Anne-Marie is responsible for one of our most famous Irish treasures kept here in Trinity, and I let her tell you a story of how this wonderful treasure came to Dublin. What's the iconic treasure I refer to? Well, here's a clue. It's so popular that almost 800,000 visitors come to see this treasure here every year. I wonder, have you guessed what Anne-Marie is looking after for us in Trinity? And famous people have come to see it too. Here we're chatting in the Long Library in Trinity and I'll let Anne-Marie explain it all. Well, I'm chatting here with Anne-Marie Diffley in the Long Library in Trinity in Dublin in Ireland. And Anne-Marie is responsible for the tourists that come here to the library. One of her jobs and one of many jobs. And we've had a wonderful tour so far, but I'd just like, just for you guys, I'm just going to ask Anne-Marie a few questions. And Anne-Marie, first off, maybe you can tell me how old is the very special book that we've all visited here, the Book of Kells? Well, the Book of Kells is over 1,200 years old, so it dates from the beginning of the 9th century. It's a copy of the Four Gospels, it's written in Latin, and the fame of the book it comes from the colour, it, it comes from the, um, the artwork. The artwork is more beautiful, more sophisticated than anything else to survive in manuscript form from this period. So we believe it was written on the island of Iona by Irish monks, followers of St. Colm Kill, because of the Viking invasions to that part of Scotland, the monks left with the book 
came to Ireland and they settled at their sister monastery in Kells, County Meath. And that is why we call it the Book of Kells, after its last resting place. Now it stayed in Kells uh, until the 17th century and because of the Cromwellian invasions to Ireland, the book was brought to Dublin for safekeeping. And eventually, in 1661, the Book of Kells was handed to Trinity College and it's remained ever since. So here it rests now. So here's rest. And children. many, many people come to visit the book, right? How, how many actually do come every year to visit the book, well, Anne-Marie? Well, last year, just under 800,000 visitors came to see uh, the Book of Kells. So <clears throat> we're one of Ireland's top tourist attractions. Um, and about over 30% of our visitors are from North America. But in fact, <clears throat> the 90% of our visitors are overseas visitors. So they've heard about the Book of Kells and they want to come and see it. And I know some very important people have come to see the book as well, you were mentioning there earlier. Yes, um, <coughs> we've had a visit from um, Mrs. Hobam and her two children, and they came uh, to, to uh, Ireland, and on their visit they had a private visit of the Book of Cows, and then they came upstairs here, uh, and uh, there was an actual picture of the harp over here, which was very nice. Uh, we've also had um, uh, Mrs. Clinton uh, visited here a number of years ago. Um, and we would have a lot of a lot of visiting dignitaries. This would be on the itinerary um, for them to see. Yes. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of people that we uh, have on our list are going to want to come here. It's absolutely fantastic. And I could be here all day with you, Anne-Marie. You could. Thank you very much for talking to us and for showing us around. Okay, Karina, Thank you. lovely to meet you. Thank you. And I really meant it when I said I could spend the whole day with Anne-Marie. It's not every day either that you get to see something that's 1,200 years old. It was mind-blowing to think that that book in front of us had survived the Vikings and the Cromwellian invasions and God knows what else. We were honoured to get some private time viewing the Book of Kells with Anne-Marie and I must say I felt like one of those visiting dignitaries having the book and Anne-Marie all to ourselves for a while. She is a font of knowledge and does a super job guarding one of our nation's treasures. So I had to pick her as one of our ambassadors for Ireland. Wouldn't you agree? But after all that, we were working up a thirst. So we travelled further down the quayside of Dublin along the Liffey and got ourselves a little Ishka Baha, as we say in Irish. Now, Ishka Baha means the water. Ishka is water and Baha is life. So the water of life. And that's what we call whiskey in Ireland. So it is an important part of our culture. And we wanted to meet a man who was reviving the whiskey-making tradition that his ancestors have been involved in for generations. We called in to his newly refurbished distillery in an area of Dublin long associated with whiskey-making. This old part of Dublin is called the Liberties. Maybe you've been there and visited. So why don't you come on in and join me as I'm here in the busy Teeling's Distillery chatting with Stephen Teeling of Teeling's Whiskey. Hi, we're here in Teeling's Distillery in the Liberties in the heart of Dublin City and I have the pleasure of speaking to Stephen Teeling. Hi Stephen. Hello, you're very welcome. Thank you, it's a wonderful building. And Stephen, can you tell us how you got started in this business, yeah. making whiskey? Well, uh, the Teeling's been involved in Irish whiskey for generations. So um, we're just a recent generation, me and my brother Jack. 
Um, our family dates back to 1782 here in the Liberties um, where a Walter Teeling had a distillery. Um, in recent years my father set up the first new distillery in Ireland back in the 80s. Me and my brother grew up in that family business and really the idea of bringing our family distillery and brand back came from that. Um, Dublin was prolific for brewing and distilling about 100 years ago. And this area in particular was very connected with yeah. the brewing industry, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, there was yeah. 37 separate distilleries in this area and it made so much whiskey it was referred to as the Golden Triangle um, around the globe. It was the powerhouse for Irish whiskey. So all the old Irish family brands, be it Jemison Powers, Guinness, were all made in this one area. Um, Irish whiskey 100, 150 years ago was bigger than Scotch. It's the biggest selling brown spirit in the world and that had imploded on itself. A lot of these old family distilleries actually shut down so when myself and my brother looked at it um, we felt there was a real opportunity to rebuild our family distillery, bring distilling back to Dublin City um, and be an independent voice in Irish whiskey. And tell us about Irish whiskies. What is unique about Irish whiskey? So um, Irish whiskey, as I said, 150 years ago, biggest selling spirit in the world. Um, the climate leads to a much more consistent maturation, so it's a little bit softer. It was the premier choice throughout um, history. Um, it was one of the biggest selling whiskies, and that's just starting to come back now. So we're undergoing a new golden age of Irish whiskey. Um, and this golden age, what, what do you see as the future for Irish whiskey and Teelings, and yeah. especially? Well, uh, Irish whiskey, um, as I said, is undergoing a big, big growth um, path, but it's only scratching the surface. So we currently only have about six distilleries in the whole island of Ireland. In Scotland, there's 200. Oh wow! So yeah. there's an ability for a lot more players, and in particular for ourselves, um, we're smaller. Uh, we're focusing more on innovation. So trying to do things differently to the bigger brands, uh, try and do things that excite the whiskey drinker, but also open our doors to people who are very interested about Irish whiskey and the heritage. They can come and see a real working distillery in the heart of Dublin City. Sounds really interesting, and I believe we're going to get a tour you as well, are, aren't we? You are indeed, thank and maybe a taste as well. Oh, right, yeah, okay. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much, Stephen. No it's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure thank to you. have you here. Thank, thank you. you. Cheers. So there you are, 37, imagine, 37 distilleries in the Liberties at one time in Dublin. No wonder it was called the Golden Triangle of Dublin. And I must say I admire Stephen and his brother for undertaking the revival of the family distillery business and championing Irish whiskey, bringing it back to the prominence it once had. So if you fancy seeing a real working distillery in the heart of Dublin City, Take a trip out to the Liberties and taste a drop of the Teeling's whiskey or Ishkabaha. We got to sample the real thing and thoroughly enjoyed it, though Mike is the true whiskey connoisseur, I must say, in our family. Now, Ireland is full of characters and I have to introduce you now to one of these characters. He is Joe O'Connell and he lives in Newtown, Jerpoint, in County Kilkenny. Joe is a real ambassador for Ireland and especially for his own area of County Kilkenny. The story goes that Joe was at an auction to buy a house, a fine old house at Jarpoint Abbey. He bought the house but he got a lot more than he bargained for. It wasn't until he and his young family were living in the home that he discovered the history that lay at his feet and he then found himself on an adventure. So why don't I let Joe tell you the story? Now, picture myself and Joe, because we, here we were chatting on a rock. I don't know how we got up on a rock, but to get a better view, I think, with a panoramic view before us 
Off in the distance is an old graveyard surrounded by a low grey stone wall. I could see a ruined abbey as well and open green fields rolling towards the River Nore. All this was in Joe's front yard. Now, Joe explained that we were looking down on what remains of Newtown Jarpoint, a town that lasted 400 years from the 12th to the 16th century. All I could see were green fields. So what had happened the town? And why was it here in the first place? We seemed like we were in the middle of the countryside. So here begins the tale, and I let Joe fill you in on the details. Right, so Joe, tell us about this wonderful place that we've landed in here in Sherpoint Abbey. Yeah, this is the town of Newtown Sherpoint. Started in the 12th century, died out in the 16th century. Now this served Sherpoint Abbey. That was the purpose of the town. But what really floats my boat on this is the intelligence of the people. Now, they really knew, the single biggest problem here was law and order. There just wasn't any. So with that in mind, the, the river Nore here on this side, which is the fastest river in Europe, so they're very safe on that side. On the lower end of it then, they have a small river, which is okay for security, but very suitable to water wheels. Oh, I there see. are two water wheels in town and a real fast little river to drive them. And then behind our back here, uh, you had a timber moat on this side here, because the timber had gone. It was high enough that it never flooded, and all the big storms came in this way. So it was down as the storm, it was up as the flood, yet all the protection they possibly could have, and yet a real facile river that the water is. And that was back now in, we're talking in the... We built our story on the 14th century. 14th century. Yeah, so yeah. we're looking at the 14th century, and we're looking at this place laid out below, before us, as to what it was like at that time. A vibrant, wealthy town. A real town there. A real, a real wealthy town. Imagine. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And of course you mentioned because there was a toll on the bridge across the River Noor. Uh, yes, there was a King's Charter got to put it to, to repair the bridge and after that then there was a toll on it. Okay, and you showed us a wonderful picture over there where you've done a survey of the whole of the land and uh, an artist imagined what it was like back there then with the houses and everything. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. when you walk the streets and all the streets are still here and all the footprints of every house is here. It's the only place in the world where there is a footprint of an ordinary person's house. You now, there's castles and abbeys and all that stuff, but it's the only place there's an ordinary person's house. And when you say the footprint, then what you really see is indentations in the land, and the survey yeah. has shown where each house plot was. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, in great detail. And the x ray of the ground fits the different measurements that's in it. So we're absolutely certain that it is perfectly right. Amazing, yeah. Joe. Amazing. But now, See that we built our story on the twelfth on the fourteenth century. Yes. This town started in the twelfth century and okay. it died out in the sixteenth century, but we just picked that point for our story. Perfect. Mm. Okay. Mm. So and So this town then lasted until what time did you say? When did it die out? Sometime in the sixteenth century. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was there after that were ruins really and the commerce maybe moved towards Kilkenny or something. Uh, no, no. Um if what happened here was uh, the town here now, it was a real wealthy town. The first thing they had here is they had a huge pilgrim business with St. Nicholas. Oh, of course. They we were forgot about so him. busy yes. is they could only stay two nights and they had to move on. Like in the 27 houses, there were 14 taverns. 
and the church's way too big as well. Like, it just doesn't fit and they push together. But what was really going on here was because St. Nicholas is here, the pilgrims were coming, they were praying in the church and they were staying in the little hotels. And St. Nicholas is buried down uh, here? Just in front of the church door. Will we go down and have a look, maybe? We'll go down and have a look. Okay, mm. wonderful. Thanks, Joe. So Joe and I walked down the field and over to the church, which was surrounded by that lovely low stone wall. In we went, and there we stopped before a very old tombstone. The flat stone slab was cracked, but we could make out the drawing of a saint on the stone. And Joe tells me we were standing at St. Nicholas's grave, Father Christmas or Santa Claus to you and me. And in Joe's mind, this is a very, very special place. Have a listen and see what you think yourself. Uh, the tomb of St. Nicholas. Now, St. Nicholas, the bottom line on him really is he was born in the 2nd century and he died in the 3rd century. And his parents died when he was a very young baby and left him immensely wealthy. Mm -hmm. And uh, he gave his life and his money to the poor. But now, uh, did you ever see the three borders hung inside the pawn shop? I did, yeah, the three yeah. balls outside the pawn shop. Yeah, yeah. brass balls. Yeah. They go back to this man. And what they're about is um, the time he was Bishop in Moira, at that time a girl couldn't marry without a dowry. So he went on one day with three bags of gold. That's what those symbols are, come from. Okay. And the first house he went to, he threw a bag in the door. He was trying to do this discreetly now, so the first bag in the door for her. The second house he went to, he threw it in the window for her. But when he got to the third house, it was locked up and he dropped it down the chimney. You can come to your own conclusions about that. But um, then, when he died, he was buried in Myra. Where's Myra now? Or Myra, uh, he was a Turk. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. okay, so St. Nicholas was a Turk. Yeah. And um, that's recorded as a deserted tomb. Okay. And the reason for that was because of the fighting, that uh, when they were fighting at war, the to protect this, they brought it to Barry initially, and then they moved it again. St. Nicholas's his bones. Yeah. yeah. But then in the 12th century then, the abbey down here was a home of cru the Crusaders, and they put a ship to sea, and they came back here with it. So they brought St. Nicholas back here? They brought his bones back here. Uh -huh. Now, the reason they done that was, this was the farthest away part of the world. There was no further they could go because America wasn't found. It was uh, as inland as far as they could possibly go. And even when the Muslim got here, they'd be rooting below at the abbey looking for it and here to sit near nice and quiet. Uh -huh. mm. So not down by the abbey, but just up here by uh, the church. Yeah, yeah. But now, where he was buried, that's recorded as a deserted tomb. And this is recorded on the first order of the survey map, whatever's on of Ireland. This is recorded at St. Nicholas's tomb. Wow. Mm. That's polymy, isn't it? Mm. Now, I didn't believe it at all first, but now I have no doubt at all that there's something very special here. And why do you say that, Joe? Well, I suppose one of the reasons that first thing happened here was um, when we decided to open this to the public, um, we had cameras here and the politicians and we're trying to ramp up a bit of publicity on it when she got a phone call from her sister 
to say happy wedding anniversary. We got married on St. Nicholas's feast day years before we ever had a display. I never put the two together. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and lots and lots of more stories like that happen here in front of my eyes. So lots of coincidences, if there's any such thing. Well, what a coincidence is, is God ways of staying anonymous. And we have coincidence here on a very regular basis. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, no, I have no doubt at all now that there is something very, very special there. And many people come to see the this uh, monument. They do. They do. We'll have probably somewhere between eight and ten thousand people this year. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And that's from when we started here. There was a dozen a year, maybe coming. Very good. And just to really taken hold and taken the interest of the people. You know, like if you think about this man. This man is dead 1800 years and he lights up the world every Christmas. He goes back right. every year and lights up the whole Santa world. Santa Claus and St. Nicholas, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's just amazing. If you think of December without Christmas, it would be a very dreary place. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so all, we owe it all to this many years. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, listeners, what do you think? Were we really looking at the grave of St. Nicholas? brought there by the Crusaders for safekeeping many, many centuries ago? All I know for sure is that when Joe found himself the custodian of this very special part of Kilkenny, he certainly rose to the job and he now finds himself showing many curious people, just like myself and Mike, around his front yard, or should I say, the old town of Newtown, Gerpoint. In our journeys around Ireland, we are very fortunate to have people who cherish our Irish traditions and way of life. And I hope you too have enjoyed our chats with those people today. Podrick McQuitter holding the oral history of his home place and telling us what life was like during the Troubles in Belfast. Sean Windsor fulfilling a young man's dream and restoring Wilton Castle outside Enniscorthy County, Wexford. Anne-Marie Diffley and her team at Trinity College, guarding our old antiquities like the Book of Kells in Trinity. And the Teeling family in Dublin, reviving the great Irish whiskey-making tradition in what was once the Golden Triangle of the Liberties. And finishing up there with Joe O'Connell bringing alive the town of Newtown, Gerapoint in County Kilkenny. Well, this could have been a very long show indeed, as to tell you the truth, Ireland is full of interesting characters and many are just the ordinary people that you meet along the way. Not heroic, but still special. Who are the ordinary people of Ireland? Well, you know, it was put very well by one of our politicians from County Kerry when he said they are the people who eat their dinner in the middle of the day. By this, he's referring to the people of rural Ireland mainly, who remain very connected with the old rhythms of life. These people, they're the real ambassadors of Ireland, and we look forward to meeting them as we will be off again soon on more trips around this lovely island of ours. But for now, thank you for your company on today's Letter from Ireland show. I hope you enjoyed the people we chatted to along the way, perhaps one of your ancestors might have been an ambassador for your Irish homeland. If so, we'd love to hear from you. As always, do remember to feel free to share questions or stories of your own. We'd love to hear them. And you can let your comments and check out more at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 305. 
We look forward to joining us again next time on the Letter from Ireland show. So everybody, Slán, that's goodbye in Irish. And as we were tasting whiskey in today's show, I'll leave you with an Irish toast. So this is what we say when we're clinking glasses. We say Slánta, and that's Irish for good health or to your health. So Slánta, and until the next time, oh, do try out that when you're raising your own glass soon. Slánta. Bye for now, Karina. Just before we go, thanks again for listening. And if you have enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we invite you to check out our special membership area called The Green Room. You can find full details of The Green Room at aletterfromireland.com forward slash green room. And remember there, green room is all one word. The Green Room is the essential resource for anyone at any stage in researching their Irish heritage. It's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and connect the pieces in your Irish ancestry puzzle. You get access to online genealogists, extensive research tools, quick win training, as well as member-only access to johngrenham.com and a supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice. The Green Room is the perfect place to be for anyone starting or continuing their Irish ancestry search. So do come and join us at aletterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Well, that's it for me. And I'll be back next week with another installment of the Letter from Ireland show. Look forward to chatting with you then. Slán Karina.